on your worksheets, you're going to, I think there's two on the front, two on the back, yeah. So we're going to spend just the first part uh, of our morning, just on the first question on your handout, because I like to talk a lot. And, um, and then after we break, then we're going to come back and do the other three. Um, before you guys turn your notebooks over, does anybody want to be vulnerable and tell me what the Wellspring purpose is without looking? Anybody? Come on. Terry's going, I kind of know it. No. <laughs> okay. I just thought I'd try. Um, the Wellspring purpose is, you guys can turn your notebooks over, um, to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live out the gospel, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. Okay. Um, Discipline one, uh, on the heart. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God, and in particular the gospel. This is the most important discipline, and I know you guys know that, and I can't tell you how important it is to shepherd your heart with the word of God. Um, we must do that. And I, I, this morning, was just thinking about all, all of you gals that are here, especially the young ones, and how blessed you are, and how jealous I am <laughs> that you get to hear this while you're so young. You get to hear these truths, um, which is awesome, uh, because we don't want to look back when uh, you're my age and say, you know. What a waste of my time, you know. I, I really, before Grace Bible Church, hadn't heard the term shepherd your heart, but God was so good to me in the very early years of my Christianity to plop me down into amazing Bible studies with great Bible teachers. And so I am, even though I didn't know that's what I was doing, <laughs> was shepherding my heart, it was so awesome. And these Bible teachers were so zealous and so in love with the Lord and I just soaked in every word um, coming from God's word. So, um, so and, and especially, um, I was thinking this week about how blessed um, we are when we do shepherd hearts, especially when you are raising children, um, five kids, to know the word. I, I cannot even imagine where I would be today, you know, if I had not been in the word. And not, not that I was in it perfectly. It's not my perfection. It's my direction. <laughs> Always like to use that. Um, but anyway, I'm just I'm just so thankful. Um, I, I I still grieve when I think about the times I've missed being with the Lord, um, times of busyness, times of coldness, um, you know, just not not um, not being in the Word because it affects me. You know, my counsel is weaker. I say things I shouldn't say. Um, my prayer life suffers. Um, and I I think about shepherding my heart on a daily basis and I've kind of changed that to not daily but constantly all day long every day right Um, we discipline our hearts when we do that we give counsel to our hearts we counsel ourselves we shepherd our hearts we are leading our hearts to the word of God so that we can meet with him and we need to bring ourselves before God why so that we grow in our love for him and we grow in our affection for him so we can serve him and obey him and enjoy him more and more and more and more and we do and it's all about coming back to that always and we are when we are that kind of woman then we do have something to say to the people in this world and and the people in the church also that's the kind of woman we have to be it's just not an option it's not an option for us everything else flows from that we know that, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so we must be shepherding our hearts to the word of God. And today, we're going to even more so see from God's word that we have to be women who shepherd our hearts. There's commands, and, and it takes discipline, and you have to be purposeful with this. Um, so discipline one, all about the what? The heart. And then there's a the second discipline. It's about the home. It says she ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. So, discipline two is about your household relationships, and I, we're going to start that next week. Next, next time we get together, we're going to be on this. Uh, it's very, very easy. As it is easy to skip over um, discipline one, shepherding your heart, it's, it's also easy to skip over this area also. Um, and we, we all know that. Um, for some reason, we think there's other people, other places, other things out there that become more important to us. Um, and I would say this has been uh, one of the most 
convicting of all of the disciplines for me is because I have four, four older kids. You know, Matt just got married. Um, finally got one out of the house. <laughs> just kidding. No, I miss him. I miss him so much. <laughs> but anyway, no, but, you know, he's out uh, now, and I've got four more, and they're still in the home, which I absolutely love that they're there. I, I can't even tell you how blessed Denny and I feel to have our kids home. Um, you know, it's like, am I still their mom? I mean, they're older. They're on their own. Financially speaking, they're all on, you know, for the most part, the older ones are. Um, but I'm still their mom, and I still can give them counsel, and they still accept it, you know? So it's just it's just so awesome. And and uh, Sam, Mick, and Ken, I'm going to college or working or both. And um, so then I got this little Abby here, you know, who's in eighth grade. And, and I find myself, I, I just found out this year I'm an older woman. <laughs> so anyway, and... <laughs> I didn't know that until this year. But anyway, I just, I, I have this little one at home and, um, she needs a lot of shepherding. And I find myself outside my home more than I should be, um, even with good things, you know, like Wellspring and other things. So, um, anyway, so we have to be concerned first about our home. Um, it is so, so important, not only just for the people in your home, but also those who enter your home, right? Because we want to give off this aroma of women who love the Lord, love the Lord with all our heart, soul, and mind. And, um, and we want to make an impact for the gospel there. Um, no matter who you are, who you live with, so husbands, you know, children, siblings, roommates, uh, family members, mom, dad, if you're single, um, we need to make an impact in the home, um, Actually, the truth is we all do make an impact in our homes. It's just what kind of impact you make in your home. Um, so thirdly, we come to, the minist- come to ministry with a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household. She steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. So this is how you're going to minister the gospel to people in the church and outside the church as well. So whether it's in a mentoring relationship or small group or school or work or whatever it is. Um, and, and obviously we've been hearing this. You don't move on to discipline two when you graduate from discipline one because we never, ever, ever graduate from shepherding our hearts. And we never graduate either from um, shepherding those in our homes. We, we kind of do it as we're shepherding our hearts. We're doing that. We're stepping into people's lives in the church and outside the church as we are continuing to practice the other two disciplines. Um, there's a quote from John Piper's book. Do you guys have it on the back of your homework? I think, is it? I hope, I hope it's there. Is it? Okay, good. All right, read, read along with me on this. Seeing and savoring Jesus Christ is the most important seeing and savoring you will ever do. Eternity hangs on it. One kind of seeing is with physical eyes, and the other is with spiritual eyes. When we see with our spiritual eyes, we see the truth and beauty and value of Jesus Christ for what they really are. Thus, a blind person today may see Christ more clearly than many who have eyes. Savoring Jesus Christ is the response to this kind of seeing. And when you see something as true and beautiful and valuable, you savor it. That is, you treasure it. You cherish and admire and prize it. Spiritual seeing and spiritual savoring are so closely connected that it would be fair to say if you don't savor Christ, you haven't seen Christ for who he is. If you don't prize him above all things, you haven't apprehended his true worth. So may God give you eyes to see and hearts to savor. And this is really what D1 is all about. It's, it's what should drive us to his word because we want to see Jesus Christ so that we might savor him and cherish him and treasure him above all others. Um, this book, I'm sure you guys have seen it. It's at our church a lot. If you don't have it, you really should have it because it gives you one glimpse after another of Jesus Christ, and it's, it's amazing. Um, okay, so we got our worksheets out. Um, we're going to be mainly in... The book of Hebrews today, so we're not going to be going all over, uh, actually. Hebrews, we're going to be in chapter 4. Um, at the beginning, we're, we're still in discipline, one on the heart, but you guys are going to see today that this passage is not all about the heart, but the heart is a very important part about what this lesson is about. God mentions the heart here in Hebrews 4.12 because of a greater subject that is on his mind than just the heart. And in order to help us all understand this, we're going to go back. So we want to get it all in context, and we're going to read chapter 3 and chapter 4 of Hebrews. So if you guys are there, we're going to start in Hebrews uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers... Oh, and also, before I start, if you guys just...
keep an eye on the word rest, because that's what we're going to be talking about today, the word rest, and and, and why we're reading both chapters. We're going to um, find that out. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, let us fear, lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has thus said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. He again fixes a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us, therefore, be diligent. Here comes our verses. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you so much for your truth. Father, you are truth. You are exalted. You are the God of glory. You are the one true God who reveals your truth to us. And Father, we thank you for this truth about your word, that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing. It is piercing. And Father, we thank you for that. We thank you that your word is living and we thank you that your word is active. And I pray today, Father, we need your help today. We need your help to understand 
Uh, We need ears to hear and we need eyes to see you in all your glory. And Father, I pray that you would use these words today to convict us, to change us, to grow us. We want to fall in love with you more and more and more. We thank you so much for the gift of Jesus Christ. We thank you for what we have through your grace, your abundant, amazing grace, without which none of us would ever see you. So we thank you for this time, Father, and may you be honored today and quiet our hearts, Father, as we hear and we sit at your feet and listen. It is in your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay. All right. The question this morning is, are you passionate for salvation's rest? Um, Anybody can relate to this, and I'm sure you can. If you've ever been on vacation, and you've had such a great time, and you've loved every minute of it, and now you're on your way home, and you're exhausted, and you want to get home because you're tired, uh, and you just cannot wait to be home in your own bed. When our kids were little, Denny and I used to drive from here to the Midwest, um, in our dandy little van, and um, there were seven of us, and so it was uh, quite a trip that we had. It was almost 70 hours round trip, about 65 hours round trip, uh, over a period of about 10 days, and and it was always fun. But on the way home, <laughs> that last oh, it was so much fun. But that last 10 hours, you know, it was just grueling. We 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 could either you know stop at a hotel and sleep, but we that wouldn't have done it for us. We didn't want that kind of rest. You know, we we could have pulled over on the side of the road. Actually, it wouldn't even have, that, no, that's not going to happen. So we could have done that, but that's not the kind of rest we wanted. Denny and I, we just wanted to be home in our own beds and with our own pillows. And um, he would always say to me, um, I'm just going to go for it. We're not stopping. We're just going to go 10, 12 hours, whatever it was. And I'm like, oh. Let's do it, you know, because I can sleep, you drive. But um, so <laughs> he always just kind of kept on going, right? And I was thinking about this as I was going over this lesson. Like, can you imagine if right after we made this decision, yeah, let's go, let's go, let's get home, that all of a sudden Denny goes from 70 miles an hour and then just pulls back and we're on like 15, 20 miles an hour. I mean, I know what I would say to him. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> are you kidding me? Oh, let's just coast. Let's just coast home. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, it would be ridiculous. It would be ridiculous to, to coast home. But um, that's this, this passage that we're in today, there's kind of a parallel between that and this. So I'm going to bring you back to that just a little bit. Um, but we want the attitude that's in Hebrews 4, um, 11. And let's go take a look at it. Hebrews 4, 11. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Let us be passionate to enter that rest. The call here is to keep accelerating Keep going 70 miles an hour, spiritually speaking, to not coast, okay? So you see this passage is a warning. Um, The Christian life is not about coasting at all. It's about diligence. It's about being passionate. It's about being passionate for Christ's rest. And if you're coasting, you're going to find out today, it's very, very dangerous to do that. The Christian life is about being diligent and passionate for one kind of rest. One kind of rest. And that is God's big salvation's rest. And I want to encourage you to hang in there because as we go, you might be tempted to kind of move your mind off. I don't get that. Just hang in there Um, because it can be confusing sometimes going through a passage on rest and being diligent when we know we are uh, resting in Christ. And so and also it's confusing sometimes when we see the word salvation in the Bible. We will see it in, in, in the New Testament. Salvation is spoken of in like three different ways. It's in a past tense way. So it says we have been saved. You've seen that before. And a future tense. We will be saved. And then there's a present tense. We are being saved. You see in chapter 4, verse 3, it says we who have believed enter that rest. So we believed and we have entered that rest. Verse 10 says... The one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from all of his works. In other words, we've rested from our self-righteous attempts to make ourselves right before God. We have rested from that, okay? That's a past tense reality for believers. And then there's a future entering of the fullness of that rest. In Revelation 14, 13, you don't need to go there, but where it says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors. Is that awesome? There's an ultimate expression of that rest with him in heaven yet to come. But there's a rest we get now in Jesus Christ, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Verse 11 is a command, and it is in the present tense. It says, be diligent to enter 
that rest. So there's a sense in scripture that we are, as Christians, we are still being saved. We are still entering that rest because salvation is that big. It, it, it's not It's not just, well, I got fire insurance, you know, and that's all salvation is. That, that is not it. There's a sense in scripture that we're still being saved. And it is a present tense reality. Okay? And Hebrews 4 includes all of these types of rest. It's just all-encompassing. So when we look at this passage this morning, you might want to start thinking about this question. How would you say you are doing in terms of being diligent? I mean, just think about just last week. If you think about what, what, what was last week, would you say there was evidence in your life that you were diligent to pursue Christ, to pursue salvation's rest? Are we passionate for that? Are we zealous for that? And it might be kind of tempting to think, well, does it really matter? I mean, I'm saved. You know, what's the difference? Does it really make that much of a difference? We're going to see it does matter. It is a big deal. Salvation is not just fire insurance. It's not just, you know, once saved, all saved. It's so much bigger than that. This rest was a very important subject for the original recipients of this letter. The book of Hebrews was written to the Hebrew Christians, and no doubt there were some who were genuinely saved, some were not, just like in any church. These Hebrew Christians, they left Judaism to follow Jesus Messiah. They heard Jesus' words, so to speak, in Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Remember Scott just taught on that? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Yeah, it's a spiritual rest for your soul. That was a huge thing for Jesus to say. Rest represented something very, very significant for the Jews because they knew that there was only one who, who could bring them rest. And when Jesus said he was the one, come and I will give you rest, that was huge for them to hear. What they heard was they heard, we don't have to work for our, to earn our righteousness. No, it's all been done for you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So they heard the gospel. And they heard that, and they followed that. But when their fellow countrymen, when the other Jews, who did not believe in Jesus, Messiah, began to persecute the Hebrew Christians for leaving Judaism... And some of those Jews who had professed Christ were returning to Judaism, and they didn't realize how dangerous that was. It happened over and over and over again throughout redemptive history, where Israel was tempted to not pursue God's great salvation. And the writer of Hebrews is warning them, listen, this must not happen to you. And ladies, this must not happen to us either. It must not happen to any one of us where we would become content to coast instead of being passionate for God's salvation rest in Christ. And that is the concern of the writer of Hebrews here. So in this passage of Hebrews 4, 11 through 13, we see three passions of the Christian who diligently shepherds her heart into salvation's rest. And you actually have four on your worksheet because we're going to give you a bonus at the end um, because you come at 7 in the morning. But really, there's only three in this passage. So here's the first question. Are you passionate to spend yourself? To spend yourself to enter the rest that comes from God? As we look at Hebrews 4.11, right away, what do we see? Let us be diligent. There is a command. Let us be diligent. This command means there's not. this is not something that we do accidentally. It's not something that is reflexive. You know, like when the doctor hits your knee and your leg just kind of goes up? It has nothing to do with a reflexive action. It's an action where we are very intentional and we are very passionate. It let us be diligent. In other words, we're to be zealous and eager and thoughtful to achieve what? What does it say next? To enter that rest. And that's why we went back and read Hebrews 3 and 4 because it's a rest that's already been mentioned. It's already been mentioned. The writer of Hebrews, he's not talking about a new rest. It's not just any rest. It's a specific rest, and there's a sense of urgency here. It is not a spiritual catnap. It is a big spiritual salvation rest in Christ that God has always, always had in mind for his people throughout redemptive history, always. And to help his people Israel to understand the big, bigger rest, do you know what God did? 
he was so gracious and so merciful. He gave them smaller rests to point them to and to help them understand the bigger salvation rest. Okay? It's like a dad who someday wants to see his three-year-old on a big mountain bike. So he starts him out on a big wheels, and then he starts him going on a trike, and then maybe a bike with training wheels, and, and moves him on all to prepare him for what? To get to the big bike, right? The, the big wheels was not the end. And that's what God was doing in the past. All these smaller rests that God gave were never, ever meant to replace the bigger rests or stand in place of the bigger rests. Just like the trike was not supposed to do that. They were never, ever the end. They were at a point beyond, beyond themselves, the greater rest that God had in mind. And you guys know what the rest I'm talking about, right? The smaller cycles where there was the weekly Sabbath after seven days, then there was a rest for a day. Every week there was a reminder that there is rest. And then there was the seventh year. It was a Sabbath rest for the land. And they were to give the land a rest for a whole year. So it came every seven years. And then once in a lifetime, there's this really big rest. It was the 50th year or 50 year where it was the year of Jubilee, where if they had slaves or had purchased land and it all went back to the Hebrew and then the slave went free if he wanted to go free. And so in your lifetime, that would only probably come once, not once every seven days, not once every seven years, but just pretty much once in a lifetime, every 50 years. And these rests for Israel, they were given at Mount Sinai. And this is real important. They were given in the wilderness prior, prior to entering into the promised land. And then the promised land was then another kind of rest for Israel. That was to make them think about, again, the greater rest that God always intended for them. We see in Hebrews 3, uh, 7 through 11. Remember the concern from the writer of Hebrews. Let's go there. It says, therefore, Hebrews 3, verse 7, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways as I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my what my rest wait a minute now in the wilderness Israel already had all these smaller rests right they had the seven day the seven year they had the the year of jubilee so what rest is God talking about that they may not enter it's the bigger rest of salvation in God himself, that these smaller rests were pointing to. They were given to help them see their great need for a greater rest. Okay, And notice what it says in Hebrews chapter 4, 6 through 8. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, to enter that rest is what that's saying, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. He again fixes a certain day, today saying through David, After so long a time, just as has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest in the promised land, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So he's quoting, the writer of Hebrews here is quoting Psalm 95, which is written by David. Psalm 95 was written long after the smaller cycle of rest were given. And he wrote it long after Joshua gave them rest in the land. And so here's David saying, today, in my Davidic day, don't harden your hearts. So do you understand what he's doing here? In Psalm 95, he's concerned again, in David's day, the greater salvation rest that God provides is being missed again. David sees his generation doing the same thing that the generation did in the wilderness. And he's saying, today, in my day, don't let this happen again. There's a pattern developing here with those that God intends to save for himself. There's a pattern developing. God's big salvation rest seems to be in perpetual danger of being missed. And for the writer of Hebrews, his readers, these Hebrew Christians, the persecuted church, they're now in danger of what? Missing it. They're in danger of missing salvation's rest. The same thing. Verse 9, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So evidently, even though they had all of these other rests, there's still some kind of a Sabbath rest for the people of God beyond these. 
In verse 10, For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works. What is he saying? The one who has that Sabbath rest of God, that salvation rest, is the one who's no longer working to earn God's favor. No longer, no longer earn to earn a good standing with God because we can't do that. We all know we can't do that. We rest from our works, right? I give up on that, that working. It's wearisome. <laughs> it made me weary and heavy laden. Just what Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. I was weary and heavy laden before I came to know the Lord. And I, when he gave me rest, there was nothing like it. I, I felt it the minute I, I received it. Um, there's a rest. This rest is marked by abandonment. It's abandonment of good works. And instead, we rest in Christ's righteousness now. Verse 11, be diligent to enter that rest. So the writer of Hebrews, now in his day, he is seeing history repeat itself. And he's quoting Psalm 95 to establish this. Okay, These Hebrew Christians, this persecuted church, they're in danger of missing that. And the perpetual danger of the church in any age is this continuing danger that we're going to miss this big salvation rest. We just think, eh, I'm a Christian. I'm okay. I have a Bible. I do Christian things. I go to church. you know. But the danger is that we're going to coast, that we will coast and we won't be diligent. And we give up on being zealous. So what would it mean to spend yourself? What does that mean? Here's a couple of things you guys can write down about spending yourself. Spend yourself to know first what Christ accomplished at the cross for guilty sinners. Spend yourself to know what Christ accomplished at the cross for guilty sinners. That's you and that's me. Spend yourself to know the gospel. And we're not talking about spending yourself to do anything to get saved or to stay saved or anything like that. We abandon that. We spend ourselves to know what Christ accomplished at the cross for us. And you can't even begin to be diligent to enter God's rest if you haven't spent yourself to understand what he did on the cross. And Hebrews has some really, really great stuff on this. I'm going to take you back to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of his glory. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory And he is the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's what Jesus did on the cross. And it is finished. You need to spend yourself to know gospel declarations like this, that he made purification for sins. He doesn't call you to make purification of sins. He did that. He did that. Go to chapter 2, verse 9. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. He tasted death for us. He tasted death for you, and you need to spend yourself to know that. Verse 14 of the same chapter says, Therefore, Chapter 2, verse 14, Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So through his death he rendered powerless the devil, and he rendered powerless the fear of death. You need to spend yourself to know these gospel realities. Chapter 2, verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to be made like us in all things in order to make propitiation for our sins. And you know what propitiation is, right? It's satisfaction, and you can add to that word exhaustion, right? Because every time we sin... As believers, it doesn't even cross God's mind to grab the cup of wrath because there is nothing in it. Nothing in it, right? He exhausts it. It's empty. 
remind yourself of these gospel truths and also remind others. That is what shepherding your heart is all about. And secondly, there's another thing you can write down about spending yourself. Spend yourself in entrusting your life to Christ and his work on the cross. Okay? Spend yourself in entrusting your life to these truths. It's not enough to just know it. Really, you must entrust your life to it. To believe these things, we must know them, we must think about them, meditate on them, expose our hearts to them, so that we can trust them, believe in them, and be satisfied in them, in him. Biblical salvation is about you, and it's about me diligently entrusting ourselves to gospel truths and to gospel realities. And when we're hearing all this, um, and I admit when I was going over this lesson, especially last year, going over this, hearing all this diligence for entering salvation's rest, we need to understand it's not a diligence that comes from uncertainty about whether or not you're purified or uncertainty about not sure if God's wrath has been satisfied for you. It isn't about that at all. It's actually just the opposite. Just the opposite. This diligence is a diligence that flows from the certainty that God's wrath has been propitiated by Christ for those who are born again. So if you're a believer, you can be absolutely certain of that. We're certain of that. And we're called to be diligent in that certainty and from that certainty about what Christ has accomplished. And it's actually God's intention that your diligence and your spending yourself actually springs from confident trust that what he said he did, he did. He did it. He said that. And so I want to ask you something. Um, What are we sometimes tempted to do with things that are certain? Sometimes we can get lazy about things that we just know are certain, right? Got fire insurance. God said he will finish what he started. So, you know, whatever. That is such a small, small view of salvation. And yet we all go there from time to time probably every day Um, but God did not did not set up salvation to be that way it's because of that certainty that we run and run and run and we're diligent and we're passionate and it's taught in Philippians uh, where Paul says for I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus so he doesn't say I'm not confident of this very thing does he he says I'm confident of this very thing And yet in Philippians 2, Paul says, what are we called to do? You can go there if you want. Philippians 2, verse 12. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for, he says, work out. Why? Not because it's uncertain. It's because we are confident of this very thing. We are certain of it. That's why we work That's why we do it, because we know that God is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Remember, we talked the last time we were together about the mixed condition, right? Um, So there's three P's we need to know. We've been freed from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. Those were paid for by Christ on the cross, but we still have the presence of sin That's our mixed condition, okay? So in working out our salvation, we are still battling the presence of sin. Amen? Yeah? And now we fight the presence of sin with and from the gospel because of our love for Christ. It's perseverance of the saints. You know, we endure, we press on. We are to be diligent to enter that rest. So, here's the summary up to this point. There's nothing accidental about us spending ourselves. We're to be especially intentional and conscientious in our zeal. We are to enter that great salvation's rest, okay? We're to spend ourselves to know first what Christ accomplished at the cross for guilty sinners and spend yourself in entrusting your life to them. And so here's another question I have for you. Is this your passion? Is this your passion? Is this our passion, ladies? I know that I personally, I, I have a tendency <laughs> to want to coast, and it's easy for me to become passionate about other things, um, resting in other things. And when I think that way, I'm not thinking rightly about salvation. 
It's a very small view of salvation, and I am so, so thankful for this warning in Hebrews 4. So thankful for it, and I I know uh, there's a reason why God had me teach this twice, <laughs> because he knows that I am tempted, you know, to, to go there, and I'm reminded and reminded and reminded, do not coast. Be diligent to enter his rest. Hebrews 4.11 says, be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall. And how did they fall? So the rest of the verse, 4.11, through following the same example of what? Disobedience. Is it your passion to not fall? To be concerned about how devastating disobedience is. Unchecked disobedience. Are we passionate about that? Chapter 3, verse 18. Let's go there. And whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest but to those who were disobedient? Chapter 4, verse 6. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter that rest, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed because of disobedience. These passages remind me that I am not as concerned as I should be with my disobedience. And I can even make light of my disobedience, make light of my sin. Um, and I know that I'm well aware of others' <laughs> disobedience more than my own. That is easy. Um, but this is really a very sobering warning to us. And so what's the answer? What's the answer? We preach the gospel to our disobedience. We preach the gospel to our disobedience. Romans chapter 6, um, you don't need to go there. Um, verse 6 and 7, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. That's what you preach to your disobedient heart. By grace, we've been united with Christ crucified and Christ raised from the dead. Why? So that we'd be powerfully freed from the tyranny of sin. So when you're disobedient and sin is just kind of looming over you and it's just weighing you down, be diligent to remind yourself the gospel truths and the gospel realities because the power to obey, it comes only from being motivated motivated by the complete work of Christ. That's your only motivation. Number two, question is, are you passionate to search yourself? Um, to search yourself with the word of God. Okay, so Hebrews 4.12. We're going to talk about the big picture of this verse, and then we're going to unpack it in detail. And I cannot wait. Um, Okay, so we know verse 12, right? For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Um, And you memorize that, right? You memorize it without seeing verse 11. And what is verse 11? Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. And then we go on to verse 12. For the word of God is living and active. For is explanatory. Okay, this is the explanation given for why the readers need to be diligent. Why does it say we need to be diligent? Because of God's word, right? So we could read it like this. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience because the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. So we need to understand what God's word is all about and what it does, whether we're aware of it or not. And most importantly, we need to know what it's doing with our hearts. That's what Discipline 1 is all about, right? And the writer of Hebrews has already been making this point about the heart. He's already pointed out the relationship between God's divine words and our hearts. So back up again to Hebrews 3, 7. Again, this is Psalm 95. He says, today if you hear his voice, in other words, if you hear the words of God, do not harden your heart. So what is he saying? God is saying there is a relationship between his words and and our hearts. Do not harden your hearts. Verse 8, verse 10 says, He was angry with this generation. They always go astray with their heart. Verse 12, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an unbelieving heart. He's already been addressing the heart, hasn't he? In verse 15, he repeats Psalm 95 again. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. 
So there's an emphasis on the word. There's an emphasis on the heart. Turn to chapter 4 again. Uh, Verse 2. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by what? Faith in those who heard. And he repeats it again um, in verse 7. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. God has intended that his words would intersect with your heart, with my heart. He's intended that his words would intersect with our hearts. And the problem that the writer of Hebrews is saying that the tendency is to make our hearts unreceptive to the word. That's our tendency. We are prone to make them hard to his word. And here, the author has told us how effective the word of God is with our hearts. Verse 12. Here we go again. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's piercing as far as division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the call of the writer of Hebrews in this entire section is this. If God's word is doing this, and we know it is, if God's word is searching us, then we need to befriend his word, right? We need to participate with God's word and cooperate with God's word by giving it the platform from which it can be most effective in our life, in its searching. You search yourself, but not apart from God's word. You search yourself with God's word because God's word is already searching you. We can see ourselves as the word of God sees us. And entering God's salvation's rest depends on that. It depends on you participating with God's word in your life. The only ones ever in redemptive history who entered the fullness of salvation's rest were the ones who humbled themselves before God's word and let his word come into contact with their heart. That's the only ones who ever, ever entered into salvation's rest. Verse 12, for the word of God is living and active. Okay, so in the Greek, if you want to give the one word in your sentence the primary place of importance, you want to give it that umph, you put it at the front. And so what's the very first word describing the word of God? Living. It's literally living, like God is living. Remember in Hebrews 3.12, it says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. The living God has a living word, and it's alive for the salvation rest that he wants to give. God's word lives to penetrate our hearts, and it lives to search us. And it lives to discern our hearts also. It's really, really important to understand that something can be alive, but it's hibernating. It can be alive or be in a coma. Um, It can be alive but paralyzed. But not God's word. Not God's word. It is living and it's energetically alive for God's intentions and purposes in our hearts. So what the author says next after living is very important. What does he say? The word of God is living and it's active. It's like a soft, cuddly teddy bear, right? That's what it says? No. Okay. We're going to, yeah, exactly. Um, Scott uses this illustration and build and... We love it so much, we're going to use it too. So um, he talks about being at a football game, or in my case, it's graduation, because I have seen this before, where somebody pulls out a beach ball, and they blow it up, and they pass it all over the place, and you just see that ball going this way and that way, and a ball looks like it's alive, and it's moving this way. Somebody hits it, another guy hits it, it takes another sharp turn, and it's flying all over the place, right? And and it's active, but it's at the mercy of the will of those who hit it, right? You know what that is? That is the way that most people are doing church and Bible study these days. They all just get together and they just kind of bat around God's word. Hey, you know, this is what it means to me, and this is what it means to me. And, um, and we just kind of hit it back and forth to each other as if it's dependent on what my will says. I'll bet it this way. And that is not what is being said here at all. You would never do that with something that is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. It doesn't say sharp sword. It says it is sharper than any two-edged sword. So can you imagine if somebody was in the crowd and they pulled out a two-foot-long double-edged sword in front of everybody and just threw it up in the air? Um, I think you would probably go, I don't think I'm going to bat that one around. 
I'm not going to do that. All of a sudden, these individual wills, they don't feel so superior anymore to this spinning sword that's coming down, right? Um, it's kind of like this, and I, and I love this description also, but it's kind of like a handheld sword that the Roman soldier would use. Um, it was the one you grabbed when you knew you needed the sharpest of all instruments and you knew it was going to make contact with that person. It was going to hurt, right? Um, do some damage at least. Anyway, the sharpest weapon, and listen to this, its grip on this sword would have been well-worn and shaped just right for one hand, not a bunch of hands, just one hand, the soldier's hand, right? That sword was meant for his hand alone to be directed by his will alone. And God's word is that way. When we come into the presence of God's word, we humble ourselves and carefully place ourselves under his word, under the sharpest of all instruments, because there's somebody's hand on that word, and it's God's hand. And he's guiding it perfectly, okay? And guess where he's guiding it? To your inner being, to the inner man. And we should be very, very careful and very humble and and very, very gentle because God's word is not something that you just throw around. And the description keeps on building. It's sharp in order to penetrate deeply and accurately, and it's piercing. Verse 12 says it's sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. Okay, so we're going to talk about soul and spirit because not real sure exactly what that means, but I think it might be more like this. Like, I do not have the ability to spiritually see or spiritually distinguish the difference between soul and spirit. I can't tell you the difference between the two because I don't have the ability to see it, but the Word of God can. Physically, can't see through my skin, can't see that, right? But the Word of God can get to places like that, that I can't see. What is hidden from my sight in my inward being is not hidden at all from God's word. So, soul and spirit, it's kind of an accumulation of terms, sort of. Um, It's helping to express the inward part of man that God's word has no trouble seeing and no trouble penetrating. Okay? But that's not all it says. It comes to a final end in verse 12. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the The word to judge means that it is the great critic of your heart. It's like legal terminology, okay? The word of God does not open me up at the heart level and then lay me bare and then step away and say, hey, you know, you just kind of step forward and give your opinion of what you see here. It doesn't do that. No, it judges. It discerns me. We are opened up so that it can give its opinion, so that it can give its criticism. It can give its rebuke. And now listen to this. And so that it opens us up so it can give its approval where we have been conformed to the image of Christ. That is so encouraging to me. Um, but what is not encouraging to me is my own heart sometimes. And, and maybe you can identify with this, but I truly, in all honesty, I have trouble discerning what is up and what is down and what is good and what is evil. And I'm le- when I'm left to my own discernment, I have no trouble discerning everybody else's issues <laughs> at all. <laughs> But in and of myself, I really cannot search effectively to see what's going on in there. None of us can. Um, our motives, thoughts, intentions, they're so intertwined and twisted together in our hearts. We can't. Um, we have good thoughts, simple thoughts, and they're just tangled up within us. Jeremiah 17:9, the heart is desperately wicked and sick, and who can discern, right? So in and of ourselves, we cannot search effectively to see what's going on there. But guess what? This is exactly what God's word does, and it can do. It enables me to search and see my own heart. This is why your life cannot be lived far away from his word, because you, your view of yourself will always be skewed. Always. What does God say to Israel in Deuteronomy 6? These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. If I have God's word in my heart and mind, I can see myself as God's word sees me, and I can search myself as God's word searches me. 
So knowing that God's word is this way, it is so wise for me and it is so wise for you to participate with God's word in its searching. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. I was thinking about the verse in James, um, receive with meekness the word implanted. Humility, receive the word implanted. It is so foolish for us to think that we can bluff our way out of anything with God. It is so foolish for me to think that I can have secrets hidden from God. (laughs) It is so foolish for me to think that I can keep my thoughts, my motives to myself. No way. But here's the reality. What I hold most secret, the God of the Word finds with the Word of God, and he subjects it to his thorough gaze. That's the reality. So when we say, shepherd your heart with the Word of God, what we're talking about is to position your heart before God and his Word so that his Word can give you an accurate picture and a perspective of where your heart is. There's no safer place to be. And again, all of this is given in verse 12 as the explanation as to why we should spend ourselves to enter salvation's rest because God's word is searching us. His word has always functioned this way. Always. His word was doing this with the people in the wilderness when he was speaking through his voice. When you hear my voice, don't harden your hearts. Participate with my voice, he's saying. So don't fight it. How many times have we heard this today? Do not harden your hearts. Plead with God for a different attitude before his word. Lord, please, please keep me humble. Show me how to humble myself under the mighty hand of God. In humility, we receive the word implanted. Plead with God for a careful and humble tenderness. Heart. Humble heart. A careful heart so that you can desire to see what it sees in you. Because what's at stake? Salvation's rest is at stake. Are you passionate to search yourself with the word of God? Um, Verse 12 describes the word of God and what it does and sees. I love this. Listen to this. Verse 12 describes the word of God and what it does and sees. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. That's what the word of God does and sees. Verse 13 describes what the God of the word sees. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So if you search yourself with God's word... And it's revealed to you that maybe you are wearing a mask or you've got a disguise over your heart, you're hiding. There's really no use in pretending, you know, because God sees through it all. He does. You and I are not hidden from his sight. No one is hidden from God's sight. We are open and we are naked and we are laid bare before God. He is fully aware of everything in us at the heart level, in everything in us at any level, right? I don't know about you, but I don't like the words laid bare and naked before God. I just don't like it. But it is a good description of how we are masking or disguising what we are before God is about as effective as a child who closes her eyes or covers them up and thinks that no one can see her. You've seen that before. If you have kids or if you know somebody who has kids, they, they think they can shut their eyes. You can't see me, so you can't see me. But thinking you can hide is about as foolish as that. And this idea of being laid bare to the eyes of him, again, not real sure what laid bare means, but some people think it's when you lifted the head of the sacrificial animal um, to slit its throat, it was laid bare. Some think it was a wrestling move that they used to use in the Olympic Games where they wrestled naked and you get your opponent down into a hold where it was laid bare and there was nothing he could do except for cry uncle. So we don't know the exact meaning, but at a minimum, it is parallel to the word naked. Laid bare means naked or open, open and laid bare before God. 
most likely it's just a lifting up of the chin, lifting up the face, so you have eye-to-eye -eye contact, you know. I used to do that with my kids. Hey, honey, look at me. Look, look, look here. Where's my eyes? Where's your eyes? And why do we do that? Because we want our kids to know, I see it all. I see what you're doing. I see what you're up to. And that's exactly what God is after. He is fully aware of everything in us at the heart level. So do you know what we need most as Christian women, as a Christian wife, as a Christian friend, as a Christian roommate or a mentor? We need to know that God sees us. We need to be able to say, God, I know, I know you see me. I see you seeing me. <laughs> you see me. Um, we need to surrender because we know that he sees us. If God already right now sees us as we truly are, then we need to surrender, right? And not fight it. Because guess what? He's no longer our judge. He's our father. If he sees you stripped down at the heart, don't fight it then, right? Instead, drop the mask, drop the disguise in order to communicate with God. God, I understand that you see me for who I truly am, and here's the foolish mask I was wearing, and you can have it back, you know? You know why? Because God stripped it off a long time ago. A long, long time ago. So strip yourself because nothing is hidden from God in the end, especially because of verse 13. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Literally, it means we just have to give an account to him. You know what would be the worst thing? Can you imagine this? That the first time you have your mask stripped from you naked before God is judgment day? It doesn't have to be that way because there's safety in the gospel for you. And you're able you can just drop the mask. So you don't need to be judged on the spot for what you are. So think about this. Here's how you can put it all together in one sentence. I love this. You need to search yourself now with the word of God so that you're able to strip yourself before the God of the word. Why? Also that you can spend yourself to make sure you enter into his salvation's rest. Search yourself now with the word of God so that you're able to strip yourself before the God of the word so that you can spend yourself to make sure you enter into his salvation's rest. So we've got the three points, and here comes our bonus. Because verse 11 through 13 they only give us three, but we're going to go in the greater context, gives us a fourth one. That's why we've looked at so many different verses in the book of Hebrews. Um, and it's this, soak yourself in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you passionate to soak yourself in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now listen, Hebrews 4, 11 through 13, we've talked about this. It is very sober warning. And you just can't walk away from that bubbly and light and all excited and bouncy, right? You walk away feeling convicted. I know that I have over and over again. But the writer of Hebrews knows that and he knows by inspiration of the Holy Spirit exactly what we need to hear next. And what does he write next? Look at it in verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, we have a great high priest and that high priest stands between us and God, and he's on our side. And he's on the Father's side, and he intercedes for us there. He has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. He is the one who, back in chapter 1, verse 3, made purification of sins, and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There's nothing more for him to do. It's done. He sits before God. You preach this to yourself. The great one back in chapter 2, verse 17, became a merciful and high priest. Things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. That's the gospel. So what did the writer know that we needed to hear after this? The gospel. We need to soak ourselves in the gospel so that... So that if the eyes of our hearts haven't yet been opened to see your true need for a Savior, they might be open to see his salvation, to see his atoning work, that your eyes might see that you have a need for a new heart that only he can give. And you can begin a whole new life with brand new passions to spend yourself, to search yourself, to strip yourself, and to keep on soaking yourself in the gospel message. Soak yourself 
in the promises of the gospel that still flow to you from the right hand of the majesty on high. He's sitting down. He's sitting down. And they flow to you from there. Look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Now watch this. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence. Listen, you are what you are. We are all what we are. He sees everything that we are, and it can be very discouraging at times, right? And yet, what does he say to us? Draw near with confidence. Don't run away and hide. He doesn't say that. Don't run away and think that you can got to go beat yourself up so that you're acceptable to God. We don't do that. We draw near to God. We draw near to him now. We draw near to him with confidence. To the throne of what? Does it say the throne of what you deserve? (laughs) No. It says to the throne of grace, so that we receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God knows that we are weak in this. Ladies, he knows that. He knows that we're in need of mercy. And he knows that we don't pursue diligently like we should. God knows that. He knows we need to find grace. He knows that we are in great need. And guess what? That's who his son is for you. Amazing. He's the one who provides all of those things. And guess what he does for you? Look at chapter 7, verse 25. Soak yourself in this truth. He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since what? Since they keep on keeping on? (laughs) No, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Verse 27, it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests who offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. This he did once for all. Once for all. Okay? He keeps his promises to save you to the end. And we need to soak ourselves in these promises. You can come with confidence to the throne of grace. Knowing that he always lives to make intercession for you. And you can come back to your great high priest. I love him. Okay, let's pray. Oh, Father God, it was fitting for us to have such a high priest. Father, you are amazing. You are a God who loves us so much. You sent your son to die for us. You care for us. And you say that you will never leave us. You will never forsake us. Father, help us. We need your help. Let us be diligent to enter into your rest. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus, thank you for those words. Thank you for your call on us. Thank you so much for what we have learned today. And may we be diligent to pursue this greater, bigger salvation's rest We love you, and it is in your precious son's name we pray. Amen. Okay. Um, All right, so um, I have some announcements to make. Um, This was our last um, lesson in Wellspring on the heart, so you can just put your heart away now. Right, Sarah? (laughs) Kidding. Okay, just kidding.